0: This is a trigger warning from the legal department. Just reminding you that this shit is pretty heavy. And that's okay. Take a deep breath. Don't forget to hydrate. Wash your fucking hands.
1: Good afternoon, friends. Thank you for ah, making the decision to join us again today, or join me again today, or me and Mark, I guess you could say, in this conversation. It means the world. I mean, obviously I'm biased, so I think it was it's also a pretty brilliant investment of time. But truly, though, that decision to press play is a big one, and I, and I thank you, regardless of how far you get while, while listening. I don't think I've ever had a conversation more powerful in a, like a work context, I guess you could say, than this one. Um, or if I have, and I'm sure I probably have, but I can't think of it. Given that, every every word that I, I throw at this one, by way of qualifying what this episode is and what it represents and, and what you can expect in it, is is only gonna cheapen it. And so I, I'm not gonna say one damn thing and let you guys like just listen for yourselves and come up with your own conclusions that with that I I did there was at one point where I misspoke and I said that that uh Kinney Shoes was the parent company of of Nike right so that's that's fucking that's not a thing that's not true uh what I meant to say was that Kinney Shoes was the parent company of Foot Locker and Foot Locker is with us was not um, when you do not shift with the trends of the buying um and the market of the buyers and the markets yeah, okay, and then, uh, you know, I'm gonna play my own um, LinkedIn DM that I sent to Mark so that you guys can can hear the, that piece of it. And so with that, I'm Amy check friends. This is the Revenue Real Hotline, and enjoy. So I took your advice about assuming the best possible intent, humanly possible, while I waited patiently for contest and and wouldn't you know the best possible thing humanly possible was legit exactly what went down. Wide-eye emoji, wide-eye emoji, wide-eye emoji, prayer, thank you, Amos. The story is that we're, we're going out on the boat today and after I record with Jeff Risley, with my, my boyfriend and mine, and uh, you know, I have ADHD. Oh, so hypersensitivity overthinking right and you know mood disorder, but I Yeah, and so like, like in the space of silence, right? There's a thing right so anyway that said I Hadn't heard from him all morning and you know There's a little bit of a question mark with the weather and so it's also very unusual to not hear from him in the morning Under normal circumstances, or before our call yesterday, I would like, I had always focused on trying to make no assumptions, right? Like, so that so as not to assume the negative intent. I had never tried to flip the script on the assumption and assume the best possible thing. And so, in my head, I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna give that a try. Like, let's just what is the best possible thing that could possibly be going down right now? And it occurred to me that, you know, this this may be too much information, but I'm camp 420, right? I think the, whatever. Anyway, so that he had been, that he was out or we were out and there's a dispensary down in like Atlantic City land, but it's about, I don't know, 45 an hour away, one way. And for him to try to squeeze in this trip this morning, for me, knowing that it would make my boat day better and more fun and more relaxing. I was like, you know, maybe, maybe that's where he is and where he went because he wanted to do all of those things for me. And, and there's like easier places to go. It's legal in New Jersey now. He's got a card, but like the quality down there. And so that's what I went with in my head about assuming the positive intent and I'll give you one guess about what actually happened and where where he was unable to text and had not said good morning or whatever anyway this is a completely fucking massive breakthrough for me massive 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 thank you oh yeah and the title of your episode is Mark Cosiglo sharpens my iron all right friend have a beautiful weekend (laughs) enjoy church on Sunday Oh my gosh. Mark Cosiglo, is that how you say it? Yeah, that's pretty darn
2: close. Kosaglow. Little Cos- less Z on
1: S. Kosaglow. There you okay. go. So yeah, I uh, uh there's there it's funny to look at my my calendar of guests and who's coming up and like to think about how I feel in ahead of time and mark like you you are unique in the sense that the way that i was anticipating and looking forward to this bad boy was as was new right and so ah thank you for coming on the show and like have you listened to any of these episodes do you have any idea what you've gotten yourself involved in friend
2: I, I had bookmarked a couple I admittedly and honestly did not get the chance to look at them oh my god I, Bye. goodbye <laughs> I, I do appreciate your kind characterization of me as unique that's that's uh, that's not uh, that's a i really appreciate that that wording i don't know if that's the the right word but it's a nice one so
1: (laughs) that's, that's my that's my experience and so it is the right word and but i'm also i don't know if kind is the right word to describe me as like a natural i'm not so listeners this is mark this is our first conversation and it's crazy i think what was unique about it mark is that i we had done or really, I have done so much interacting and taken so much enjoyment from your posts on LinkedIn. And you, you had always been like super responsive um, and communicative on the banter, including when I pushed back a little bit, which, you know, that was we, so few and far between really, but uh, which we can get into. However, I feel like I know you already. And obviously, you know, you know that I'm a massive fan of outreach. I have bought and implemented outreach twice and you have been around for a very long time, currently operating as the VP of sales. Uh, And so there's that, that we I'm sure have, have lots of fun things to speak about, but like, what about you? Like what were you, what made you say yes to a a conversation with a random?
2: Uh, Well, listen, I think I I get invited to a lot of these and you're right. I do. I do. Many times I can't find the time or don't want to find the time, uh, but I think when you have like this interaction and the history of interaction with somebody uh, and their content back and forth, like I think you're right, you kind of like feel like they're not quite as much of a stranger as they really are, and so you know uh, because we kind of formed a semi relationship on LinkedIn, that that I was like, yeah, sure, I'll help you out and, and come on a call and. Uh, maybe it'll help outreach out too. So,
1: <laughs> well, I, uh, I'm a, I've, I read Stephen Covey, um, early on in my sales career. And there was a year mark where I gave up listening to music for a year while driving around to calls and I was all over the scene. So there was a lot of driving, but, uh, that one went deep in that win, win or no deal. And so I, I, I always took that philosophy into the way that I sold, And, but it's so much more applicable really in everything when you can look for opportunities. Like I think invent, I, well, you know, I can't believe I'm admitting this publicly, but I think in diagrams or graphs, right. And so Venn diagram comes to mind. And so when that there's frankly, it's been my experience that those mutual wins exist far more often then we generally acknowledge or speak about or communicate about mostly because we're not communicating across divides nearly as much. Um, however, yeah, you're speaking my love language here, friend. And so thank you. Thank you there. Okay. So real quick, let's, let's get the business out of the way. Target audience, the experienced tech seller, the theme of the show, conversations about uncomfortable conversations in sales, Naturally, we get – we. this is a mistake-friendly zone, a judgment-free zone, tangent-friendly zone, and the the only rules are that there are no rules. Um, however, uh, we get real here on this show in many ways. Like, and so this is – me. like, I didn't even brush my hair today, right? Not even brushed. Zero makeup. And I'm even in a tank top, and they say that that's not even – you're not supposed to do that. But you know what? I had the most beautiful call with RJ Jefferson right beforehand, and I just – I It ate into my, you know, make myself presentable for Mark. And so I would make that decision 20 times over. So that said, you ready to go? I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay. I wrote down, I actually, I didn't write down uh, the things that I would, would, like categories or possible topics to discuss, even though I normally would. But what comes to mind is obviously the execs hates and the rep hates series, which is just smoking. There is outreach. Um, and I mean, I personally am just like dying to like extract all this insight from your brain about the trajectory of the company. And like, here's, here's the thing. I'm a massive fan of tech tools that allow for humans to separate out the steps in their process that are of, you know, high value versus low value and automate the low value tasks so that we as the humans can hyper focus on the high value tasks. Mm-hmm. And outreach is a phenomenal tool to do so. And sometimes, though, there are situations on the way that it's implemented or the humans that are thinking of like so I think of, you know, mandating messaging and removing that a level of creativity and autonomy and fun for the SDRs. And so, like I think of the admin settings, which are beautiful and there's a lot of options and how to customize and part of that's what you're supposed to do. And you guys obviously nailed it. Um, But, you know, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about the origins of the SDR model and how that, as someone that I was full cycle really from the very beginning. And so uh, there's that, your experience starting with shoe sales Right, my dad was a. a I, I say this often. I was raised by a seller who turned broker of financial services, but he was back in the day, Kinney Shoes, which was the parent company. Interestingly enough, of Nike, and my dad had one of his favorite plaques. Like we, I just helped him move recently. Um, it was like comp- It was a company award for like training the most trainer like managers, store managers that would then go spin out. And so that was the company award that he won. And so I'm really interested about your your post about the, uh, the shoes and how that kind of led into career and sales. And then I saw a lot on your LinkedIn profile about kids and learning. And it's so interesting to me to notice the themes and the patterns, right? I think of uh, Scott Lees, who has a master's in learning theory and how that relates to leaders which I distinguish between sales bosses and sales leaders, but those that understand the mechanics of learning, whether it be kids or adults, um, it's just, you could taste it really. And so even in the way that they construct posts on LinkedIn about what execs hate. Uh, And so out of all those things, friends, where, what about you? What, where would you like to start or anything I didn't mention too, but dealer's choice and you have to choose. (laughs)
2: Um, I mean, listen, I can start with the shoe store thing. Let's do it. Uh, that's a good starting point because I think it was the in my initial indoctrination into sales. Though there are rumors from my parents that when I was six or seven-year-old visiting my uncle that I loaded all the toys he had into a wheelbarrow and took them around the neighborhood and see if I could swap them for better toys. <laughs> but uh,
1: Oh my gosh. That's so funny. I love these kids stories. I, I've got a couple of good ones. So I can't, this entrepreneurial spirit that that shows up early is just like to be celebrated. Okay. But continue.
2: All right. Well, you know, the, the first thing is, is like, there is a little bit about a person and how they're raised in their DNA that influences things. So the, my dad, who's a very successful, uh, operations leader. He led, uh, all of manufacturing for M&M Mars for, um, uh, multiple years. If so you had a Snickers bar or M&M or whatever, for probably eight or nine years, my dad was responsible for making it of quality and making it cheaper to manufacture every year. And, uh, he, uh, he said when I was 15, you will have a job when you're 16 or I will take you to the grocery store and I will sit down until they hire you. Right. And so I was like, Mm -hmm. why don't I work at the grocery store? Mm -hmm. So I went to the mall and I applied to all the shoe stores and I, uh, um, I started hounding this one shoe store manager and I called her every day for two months. And I was just like, can I have an interview? Can I have an interview? Can I have an interview? And you know, nobody had taught me that, but I, I was just the, I, I was so.
1: You knew what you wanted. Yeah, I knew what I wanted I
2: was, and I, wanted, I knew what I wanted to avoid, which is being working even at the grocery better. store, yeah, right? Even yeah, even better, right. And so I, um, I hounded her and she eventually said, Mark, you know, yeah, the only reason I ever gave you an interview is because you wouldn't leave me alone. And then, you know, I turned into the best rep at that store. And then there was a seven-store chain. I was the best rep at the seven-store chain. And what really what it came down to is I, I got lucky is I had a manager that was a consultative seller. She didn't stand in the store and just say, here, I want this in a size five. She would look at somebody's feet and be like, Hey, do you know that you overpronate? Let me see your shoes. Do you see this wear pattern? Do you have, you have pain in your, your knee? That's because you're wearing a shoe that doesn't provide the like interior support that you need to deal with how your foot rotates and the thing. Let me give you this other shoe too, to just try on. And you know, it's crazy to think, but like uh, I was a shoe store person at a mall that had a customer list of about 200 or 300 people that would only buy their shoes for me. And so, and that was because of what I, what I learned from that manager and my training there. And so that was kind of my indoctrination into sales, which is don't sit around and just deliver what people want. Like, what is their problem? Can you solve it? Can you figure it out? Can you educate them along the way? And can you create demand that only you can fill? And so like, that's kind of how I think about sales in general. And it it even got to the point where I would, I was tired of sitting in the store. I would go into the hallway of the mall and I'll be like, Hey, I see you're walking this way. Oh, Hey, can I put your (laughs) your shoes real quick and tell you how I can make you more comfortable walking right now. And I would bring people into the store because I was tired of doing outreach.
1: Oh my gosh. What pun intended. I
2: will just just yarn at the mall, Amy. That's what I'm talking about.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Wait, can I add something to that? So you'll like this. If it, this started with managers. So first of all, I, I stocked out ADP uh, major account, same thing, knew exactly what I wanted. They had the best sales training program uh, in the country at the time. And I was 24, right? There was absolutely no reason for me not to be shoved down into small business services. But anyway, that's not even what I wanted to share. My dad, so he had been in a bunch of stores even before me and right as my mom and he were like they they moved to the jersey shore for mm-hmm. the store the Kinney's store in the Ocean County Mall which was newly constructed right malls were starting to be like a new thing actually and so but my dad understanding what you just described and i'm i'm actually interested about this this female manager that you speak of um you know yeah, emphasis do? again on female manager. Even though females in retail is a, a thing, um, specifically, it's what well, whatever. This is a different gender conversation. But he would he would realize that on the beautiful days during the summertime, everybody was at the fucking beach, and all of the people that had been staffed to come in for that day also like teenagers, right. Also really probably wanted to also be at the beach. And the irony is that not irony, but my dad realized that there were no customers either. Right. And so he had worked a a flexible or dynamic scheduling system so that depending on the weather for the summertime, if it was beautiful, allowed everybody to, you know, not call out, but go do like, there's not even going to be anyone here. However, if it rains, we're going to get slammed. And mm-hmm. so your ass is better be calling in on the days that it's raining saying, can I, do we need help is, can I come in and, and help to, you know, serve the clients during these days. And I, I don't think I understood it originally when I was, well, maybe I did actually, cause it's obviously gone really deep, but like, it just speaks to not just the consultative tree teaching and empowerment, and the psychological safety right, that that creates um, for a human like yourself to go to the number one seller in seven stores, which is a big fucking statement. I didn't, that's not skipping by either, but also the culture and the environment that is created at the top and modeled for those that are during, you know, that are open to learning and impressionable and, and willing to work. It just- I think I think you're going to see
2: that that's where reps hate is going to end up going.
1: Yay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I've only yeah. seen. Yeah. Okay. Can you feature one on your profile? Cause I don't see any featured yet. There's a lot of execs hate in there, but uh, okay. But tell continue, continue. Yeah. I need to have a first,
2: those first couple real breakout ones. It was kind of like the exec hates thing started off as, Hey, I just see reps doing things to me wrong all the time. And I see my reps doing some things wrong all the time. And why don't I just kind of start to catalog those? And, you know, I have an Evernote that has my to be posted file on there. And I probably still have 50 exec hate things and I have 50 or 70 reps hate things. And they're just observations of things. And typically what I've found um, with what you're talking about without leadership and management, and that makes me want to do the reps hate stuff is, um, you know, I don't think that managers learn how to lead. And I know that's kind of somewhat a cliche to say, but it really is, they, they do their best job, they care, but what really ends up happening is they somewhat model whatever's been done to them. And I guarantee you what's been done to them is semi-abusive, super negative, much more stick than care oriented, built on fear, not confidence, and I just know, you know, and uh, if I, I
1: survived it, you can,
2: that's right. And I don't share this a lot, but Amy, I'll share it with you. Um, I was a pastor in my church for like 15 years and I saw what the difference was with beating people over the head with the Bible or whatever religion versus just being like, you, you got the answers, like just look inside yourself and have faith in yourself that you have the answers and you're, it'll all work out. And I saw the difference in the two approaches of like, And I think that that's what's kind of spilled over into how I think about leadership is I fundamentally believe that if you are my rep, Amy, that you know what to do. I have faith in you as a person. I have faith in you as a human. I have faith in you as a seller. And my job is to create a space where you feel safe to be creative and to take risks and to do stuff and not to be reliant on me to have the answers, to tell you what to do and all that. And when you create like self-sufficient reps, then you create a place where you as a leader can actually do the stuff that you enjoy, which is the strategy and the the, uh, the celebration of things and like the building and all that kind of stuff. But so many managers are so worried and think that they have to drive performance when really their job is to affect change. And the way that you affect change is through inspiration, not through like, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to legislate these things. And so like, listen, I think that that's, that's kind of where the rep hates going is, it's going to a place where it's going to challenge leaders to trust reps more, to be more inquisitive rather than more directive, to, to believe in the fact that confidence is the greatest gift a leader can give a rep. And so those are the things that I see that just really annoy me, drive me nuts, that I hated as a rep and that I want that my sales culture to have here at outreach. And so that's what you're just seeing is some of the documentation of those things.
1: Wow. So many places where I could go with that, even with the starting with the pastor stuff. So one, I would say if you're looking for any inspiration on things that reps hate, I would, I would head straight over to Brian Walsh's LinkedIn page, which is, his post and the data that's coming out of rep is, you know who Ryan Walsh is, right?
2: He's the CEO
1: him, no. of rep Do you know what rep is? I never heard of rep view. R E P V U And you're welcome <laughs> that. So he was episode number one, Ryan Walsh. Right. And so, because he, anyway, my parents, so I was raised in a fundamentalist Christian household and I, there was really only, uh, I played lacrosse. I was, I got almost pure grants to get into college at American. I was working same thing. Like your ass is not sitting around in my house. Um, and also frankly, I couldn't wait to be self-sustaining and be able to like buy my own clothes and whatever. And so I, you know, there was that too, but anyway, the only rule, the only rule was you're, if you're not in church on Sunday, you're not allowed out the following Saturday night. And I tried everything to get out of this. including like, there was a pair of like big ass, like red sweatpants that I would wear for practice. And I would wear them all week, right? Get them really dirty and like scrimy and like just, ugh, just whatever. And so then I would, I would put those on, right. To try to get a, like hit my father to his credit. <laughs> it was like complete poker face. Now, mind you, there's, there's something that I lost, right. Being forced like that however jesus christ man this is gonna be real my parents so they were involved in church planning so i know a lot about the volunteer aspect of and using um the upside of messages <laughs> to trigger behavior change which is frankly you know the, that's what selling is about right to getting people to change their damn behavior and i know that you know this based on you know your first line right on linkedin and Selling's always changing are you And so, but that said, that said, I, when I turned 18, right, that was it. I wanted nothing to do with it. And I, I have two sisters, both younger, we're all 18 months apart. And my middle sister actually got pregnant in high school and we experienced more compassion and, and love and acceptance in the secular community. And so this, but anyway, so there's that, um, Let's go in that. I'm well we we can, but I said there's gonna really you said a, but you go. said a bunch of shit too. So that is I'm, I um I almost re- okay recovered. I'm, I'm gonna shut up. You obviously want to talk about this. Let's go. Yeah, listen,
2: I'm recovering for some of that stuff too. I think that um there is humans innately, I believe, want control. And there's several ways that you can have control. One way you can have control is by having a point of view or perspective and forcing everyone that doesn't have that view into that view through fear or love or whatever. Penalty,
1: right. Positional authority. Yep. Sales boss.
2: You're going to go to church or you can't go out on Saturday night or you're going to go to church because you like going to church and the way that you like going to church is it's optional. You, you go, you, you find something that you are interested in. There's a topic that you're whatever there's an inspiration that happens. And then what happens is you have a lifelong love of going to church and not that going to church is anything. That's not the topic. It's, it's, it's anything like, you know, here's another great example. My kids, people ask me, used to ask me all the time, Man, there's always soda and candy and cookies and chips and everything in your house. And you don't even control your kids on it. They can just go grab gummy worms anytime they want to. But you know what my kids have learned as adults? Self-control. And when there's when their friends who never had candy, never had anything in their house, never learned self-control, the minute they were free and they went to college and blacked out the first night because they had... they had no idea of how to self-discipline, who's the failure in parent, me who gave my kids candy and free reign and whatever. And like, but with the understanding of like, you know what you eat too much candy, you feel sick. Eventually you don't eat so much candy. And eventually like candy isn't such a big deal. And then when you get into bigger, forget about
1: drilling your teeth for all the cavities that you're uh, That's that's a lot of fun sitting in the dentist chair for the first time as a child. Right. But like,
2: you know, I would rather have my kid learn that lesson than have to learn the lesson of I'm a degenerate, you know, sophomore in college that goes out and drinks five nights a week because I never, my parents never let me learn self-control. So I I just, I, um, like I said, I have faith in the general goodness of people. And I think that they just, a lot, a lot of people just need help realizing it and trusting in themselves and having confidence in themselves and, and it'll lead them in the right place. And that's the place they should be.
1: You know, it's so funny. So, you said the greatest gift a sales leader can give to their team was was confidence. And I, I, so I love this debate. This could I could spend hours on this one with you. I bet. And you know, we, I, yeah, I may, we, yeah. However, I would say the greatest thing that a sales leader can give to their team is psychological safety and a safe space. And it, you know, it, it goes by lots of names, right? Culture, wellness. um, autonomy, creativity, art, the ability to think critically, <laughs> you know, about their, their messaging for, for outreach efforts their, who like how to position yourself and be in a target rich environment so that when a buyer or buying team has arrived at the point where the business problem, right. That they know that they have, and they knew this day was going to come you're front of mind so that they know to call Mark or to call Amy. And that is a, not only is that not happening in most places, in most sales floors, to your point about like the managers that have, you know, are just perpetuating what they experience, And I would equate it to pedophilia. Right, not to get so dark and ugly real fast, but I mean, it's not this is not rocket scientists, the pa- rocket science, the patterns play out. And so, you know, if you want to touch some kids and, and that and you experience that, is then that is you're going to in your brain associate love or whatever, and it plays out that way. However, I'm going to point at my mental health article for Sales Hacker last year that like I went deep into this one about um, the which was called to use your point about the messaging with carrots, right? Mental health, the greatest competitive advantage you'll ever know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, so I go deep into that, including like Peter's principle and, and whatever, but that said, psychological safety and, and wellness.
2: I think confidence is, is a, is a version of psychological safety. I think that th- this is the, the, the main thing that I see sales reps doing incorrectly, and the main stuff that the execs hate content is centered around is I'm about to do something that I know if I don't do, I'll get in trouble for not doing. And I've been shown how to do it in the past so that I can say I've done it in a way that I was taught, but they apply zero creativity and thoughtfulness behind it. And, and what do you think thought- that is? Um I just don't think I, th- I just don't think that they've they've been unlocked to think about things creative. Like let's, let's use like the follow-up email as an example. All right. So I just get off a meeting and I send a follow-up email. Every rep knows that if you don't send a follow-up email, your manager is gonna say, why didn't you send a follow-up email? So that's the first thing is they're doing it not because they believe in it, but because they're scared of the consequences of not doing it. The second thing is, is they like, well, the follow-up email should have all this stuff. And they write an email that they themselves would never read because they've seen that as an example of a good follow-up email, right? And what they don't do is they don't say, listen, if I was this executive sitting in this meeting and I have five seconds on my phone to see an email from a rep that's a follow-up email, what should that email be? And like just pausing and stopping for just a second. And like you said, having the safety, obviously having the confidence, having the creativity.
1: What about if you don't have time to pause for a second because you got it through a hundred dials a day? Like,
2: Then then don't be in sales.
1: No, 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 no. So, okay, hold on, hold the phone. That's a black and white thinking. That's a flag on the play. We call those cognitive distortions. And I <laughs> I normally have a taboo buzzer. You would have gotten buzzed on that one. It's So at ADP, right, the place where I stocked out, um so we were selling obviously payroll hr um services and software but time entry systems and the biometric hand scanners it was very cool right so let us just to put a time stamp on this one i i was very excited about the tomtom to hit uh, our dashboard during during this period however I was taught when it comes to prospecting that there's tons of ways to do it. You got to find, this was my dad, by the way, but you got to find three ways that work for you, right? So going out into the store or into the mall and interacting with humans that may not even know that they have a need with, with shoes and, or in a better experience. Um, but I, and so the, the trick is to find the three things that work best for you, right? What do you like doing? what are you good at doing with bringing you your results, Pareto's principle style, right? You're going to get 80% of your results from 20% of your activities. Job number one as an SDR is to figure out what those 20% or activities are so that you can both stop doing what's not working and quadruple down on what is. We don't teach that shit. Um, something I cover in my five on Friday episode and also in day Kong cracks, the talent code episode number three, that said, Oh, motherfucker. I lost my train of thought. The, um, Oh yeah. Don't be in sales. I realized, so I started reverse engineering the client experience and the business problem. And I thought about, okay, so if these, there's such a thing as time and labor violations, I wonder which government entity is responsible for, you know, dealing with that. And so then I was like, I wonder, okay, and then I found out. And then I was like, I wonder if I could submit like a public records request to get a list of all the, businesses in my territory that got hit with time and labor violations the year prior. And then I did. And then two months later on this like old school, like rolled paper of waxy feeling, you remember the old ones, a list of 200 companies and 80% of that list converted. And so this isn't, and now mind you, there's a massive distinction between cold calling and warm calling. Right. And so I do not mean to take away from anybody that loves, you know, hitting the phones, right. Because it works for them. However, there are so many fun and varied and beautiful ways to prospect and think about being able to think critically about a problem like that. And to, to do something like that, even though, you know, I didn't necessarily ask permission, but also I didn't know any better yet that I wasn't allowed to. Yeah. Also, anyway, there's a lot
2: to unpack in that, right? The, the first thing is, is, um, different functions allow for different levels of creativity. I would argue that a STR function is 90% systematic and 10% creativity. Well, why
1: do we give the hardest part of this profession to the youngest, most inexperienced person on the team?
2: That's not, it's not the hardest part. It Prospecting,
1: takes the- opening up our. Turn- It takes the
2: most discipline and it takes the most uh negative feedback overcoming like that but it's not the hardest well
1: so let's think about it from the learning curve sorry to interrupt right and so hard is relative you raise a fantastic point and so i'm sure if we can i this would be a fun poll actually if you want to do you're more active on linkedin i would do this poll like what's the hardest part for people that have have been around for a while the first learning curve right stage two of the competency quadrant is conscious incompetence And so this is also, there's a, even with uncomfortable conversations or discomfort, there's a learning about how to operate through discomfort at the beginning. Not only, so it's your first exposure to the profession. You're not from like exposed to discomfort in most instances. You know, I I was raised at the kitchen table. We were asked every day, when did you feel butterflies in your stomach today? So I'm like a machine anomaly in this regard. But like, so for those factors, the experience of learning prospecting, I think in many ways. Well, let's, let's
2: separate the context. So I, what I hear you saying is hard. Is not skill-based it's uh, emotional and resistance and change (laughs) management based Mm -hmm. the skill of cold calling and prospecting is not hard. The overcoming of the negative and rejection and the discipline of mounting up the dial another hundred calls the next day after a hundred people told you, you no know, the day before that's very difficult. Right. But I believe that the skill part is super simple. And so that's when a manager has to make sure that they're managing and training on boarding to do things right away. Like for example, at outreach, this is one of the things we do in our Goji training thing is we give people 10 or 15 businesses. And we say, you got to call every person today and try to sell them a pizza and they pick up the phone and call local businesses in Seattle and try to sell people pizza for lunch. Do you know how many people do it successfully? Hardly anybody. But you know what we say at the end of that? That's your worst cold calling day at outreach. It will never get worse than that. It's only up from here. And like as a manager, your job is to create that place.
1: Experiences. Yeah. Where you can get
2: through that, that psychological sure. part. The skill part is super simple. And so I don't want to conflate the two. The skill part of selling later stage deals Hugely difficult. Years the master. So many nuances. Picking up the phone and using as a proven data driven script to convert people into opportunities, not difficult. Just
1: Yeah. Emotional. No, you're you're and you're spot on about the systems and the importance of onboarding. But again, like so I'm I it's just this this frame that cold calling is, and again, distinguishing between cold and warm calling right? So working your way up to it. When in most instances, when I see this played out as it relates to onboarding, right? So I sold for a decade, right? I hear you loud and clear on the hard part. And I revert back to our target audience, the experienced tech seller. And so creating content, like one of the things that RJ and I were just talking about was that, you know, about the show and and how it's different, but more specifically. And so it was beautiful things that he was sharing with me. But what I said is this is the shit that I wish that I had while entering into the harder aspects of learning how to do the enterprise selling part, like you beautifully articulated. So I'm with you there. However, I think about the difference between activity and effectiveness. And I think about the process, like I'm not, I know it's, it's varies drastically from place to place, but if I'm a new SDR and part of my activity metrics are to identify you know, even 50 prospects a week. It doesn't take very long before I've got 2000 names in Mm -hmm. my outreach experience. And the ability to develop mastery or like work through like the building blocks of managing those processes at that moment in time with 2008, like as opposed to let's focus on 50 and really hone in on the skills and the building blocks to be able to convert Yeah, really I, I, effectively. Like that's, that's also a, a piece of it. And then of course the 80, 20 rule, can we also teach reps about just the basics of Pareto's principle that would also really help? I would
2: say like the 50, like the 50 prospects a week thing is, is, isn't that that's a leadership issue, not a rep issue.
1: Mm.
2: Like why, if, if, if 50 prospects a week, you can't give your reps a system to turn that into their quota, then it, you're having them shoot for the wrong target. <laughs> Are they even reps,
1: shooting? It's just like the shit against the wall.
2: That's exactly right. If 50 com- prospects a year helps sh- You should be able to, in the same way as 50 a week, you should be able to do 50 a year and have a process. Like that's where, where that's what I mean when I say that STR and prospecting is 90% machine or system or process driven and 10% creativity is I should be able to build a process that converts the inputs that I expect of my reps into the outputs 90% of the time. And because prospecting is mechanical, it's literally. It's I, okay. A- all right.
1: All right. I, so this is again, with the definition of prospecting, one of my favorite tactics when I, so I finished at Thomson Reuters, just, so you know, hit my annual quota in February, that final year, I averaged about 175% of plan for a decade. I taught performer across the board. Um, and then I had, a, you know, a very front and close experience with the mental health care system. Um, keynoted conference. I love speaking. I loved the speaking circuit. That was one of my favorite tactics. And my opportunities would literally walk up to me as I stepped off stage and shake my hand and say, can I email you? And so there was a ton of art and creativity on the session design. Um, that's not so scalable.
2: That's not scalable. Sure every it is. Rep can, I, every rep can't do that.
1: Well, they every rep can find their three things. And so, from a sales enablement but, perspective... But, but can
2: if every rep runs are three things, you can't train everybody on it. It's so many different things. You can't measure what's effective or not. So it's everybody's story of what, like my job at outreach is to create scalable systems that give predictable results. Like that's my job. And then to field it with people that can run those systems and then to have leaders and reps that help me iterate and make those systems better over time. Like that's my job. And so What happens is when you create like, Hey, find your three things is you immediately go to an unscalable situation. Okay. So,
1: so I'm going to, I'm, I'm laughing because you're going to get in your, in the email after this. It's a, it's a report that it's like a, so I worked in legal and so working with legal marketers and legal business development humans, they, when, when you think about the power dynamics and the org structure in law firms, it's a partnership model and the attorneys right? In many ways, like I joke that attorneys went to law school so that they can make a lot of money and not have to sell. And in the same way that dentists don't like, people don't want to sell. And so it's easier to have your, your support functions, air quote around supports, um, answer, just chase after RFPs incessantly. And so I put together this report on how to measure the effectiveness of your RFP program, including a stratification table and understanding which factors to measure ahead of time. And so I'm pretty well versed in how to measure the uh, hard to measure. It's why I love fucking outreach because it makes it easy to teach and manage and maintain. Um, but in the same way, so you're going to get this report and and I, I'm chuckling. And so I also know that I'm pretty unique in this sense. There's not. And then Right, So as a sales enablement human, the transition to sales enablement, my definition of it, the right way to do it, I, and as someone that's been around the empowerment of sellers for the, her entire life, I, I know how to design programs in a way that make it scalable and to teach different, like put, create learning paths. Right, that are choose your own adventure, or doing daily challenges, and and so we're as not to pull reps out of their precious selling time. And so there are a thousand ways to help people to identify what they're good at, develop confidence, and to system and also to manage and measure the process, including the learning indicators from my end to be able to control for retention of knowledge or skills at a high degree, which is my job is not done until knowledge is retained at eighty uh, percent at scale. The second piece, though, is I I can look at the caliber of content that I'm creating by way of, I mean, we're just talking straight like Google Workspace and the activity dashboard. So looking at how frequently reps are tapping into my style guides, which is my branded board for playbooks, and how quickly they're doing so after the program. So then I can also differentiate between those that are applying effort to learn and grow and develop versus those that are not. And now I marry that with PIP plans. And we don't distinguish between the two, and that is a, a massive problem, but also easy to fix. All of it completely and as measurable as you could possibly imagine. Favorite metric is the learning indicator, um, and have the data model right to do all of these things. It's just it's the human aspect of the problem that is not very receptive to change at the sales boss level.
2: Yeah, so I'm not sure I completely followed everything you just said, but. I want to make sure that it, like my perspective, you understand my perspective. I believe it is the company's and the leader's responsibility to give a rep a system that if they work, they can hit their quota.
1: Right. I agree.
2: And then to create the space and the confidence to do all the extra stuff to blow their quota away right? But a uh, company owes it to a rep to give them a way to hit quota, not for a rep to have to figure out how to hit quota by finding your three things or whatever it is. Like those three things are the things that should help you do 200%. The stuff that I ask you to do, the systems and processes I create should get you to hundred percent. If you don't, if you can't do that as a leader, then you're not an effective leader, right? Like you can't bring people into a situation where they have to figure it out or they have to see what works and what doesn't. If you don't have the data, if you can't run the processes in a way to give somebody that stuff, then you don't really have a viable job, right? That's, that's how I look at it. So listen, I'm not saying that don't be creative, but what I am saying is, it's is my job to get you to quota using the processes. Once you understand the processes, go be cre- your creative self and figure out how to blow your quota away and get to your next role.
1: So I agree. So what the first is, if you didn't quite follow the last thing that I said, that is one thousand percent on me, and so I apologize for not um, explaining it more more ac- accurately. So that's me. I how. I guess. I'm so I. it's hard not to take your experiences. And so I'm biased, right? When it comes to the SDR model and don't get me wrong, like I've dug deep into outreach's beauty and on all things in this front. And I, when you talked about at least on the front end, right? The SDR is 90% process, 10% creativity. It's hard to create a culture where someone can go from 100 to 300% when they're only model, the only thing that they see and the space created for creativity is 10%. Um and frankly when when it comes to process design there's we call them dynamic systems I have a, a green belt in process design and and that is when you can create a process that is flexible enough and adaptable enough to move and adjust right and kind of make, not control for but allow for some variation um and testing and experimenting and iterating And so when the culture says you know only 10 percent of your your, of your whatever is allowed to be creative that again, that doesn't equate to a 200% jump from hundred percent. So there's that. The second thing is that I, you know, there's a lot of talk about the SDR model and pros and cons. And frankly, I, I, I'm almost pissed that we didn't start with this because I, I want to have a really strong debate about this. However, I'm really, I'm almost like morally opposed to teaching someone a part of the job and separating that out and even on the back end like with aes if i have a if i have a system where these are two separate functions and i have not taught the aes how to prospect at that enterprise level right i just i think white glove you know just whatever have i really taught them how to be an ae and so there's those implications however i i know in my soul and in my bones mark the outreach um, is doing all the things that you described because I can see the outputs both of the product that it hears and listens and delivers for the customers again and again and again. And I'm very interested about what's the state of the data labs over there. Um, I also, one of my favorite race at work episodes was one that Manny, no, um, I can't remember, but Manny did something, it was a podcast episode. And so understanding his journey as a, a CEO And then hearing you to say, like, I was an original member of the team. So I can, I certainly see the type of human that is anyway. But I think there's a, there's a lot of room here to have conversations with different ways to approach the problem, to hone in on what the actual problem is really. uh, is another big one too.
2: So going back to like that safe space, that confidence, that psychological safety area is the 90, 10 thing is again, that's the, I believe that is the, I'm not saying that only 10% of your brain power should be spent on creativity. I'm saying that 90% of your job better be figured out by the company. And you should be able to do that in order Got to it. get a job. Right. Got it. Okay. So what happens when you do that is if my success is solely built on my ability to be creative, figure out my three things, all those sorts of things, the risk level is so high that I believe that you creatively are limited. And, but when you know, I'm going to hit my quote, if I do what I'm told all of a sudden you have all this room and no pressure and your mm-hmm. creativity goes crazy. I use it going back to kids and parenting and stuff is, you know, I, kids, if you don't give them rules are constantly looking for the rules and the boundaries and trying to figure out where they should stop and where they can go to, if you give a kid rules, they're infinitely creative inside those rules. Now, I think a lot of times some of the rules that we give our kids are a little bit too closed in, right? But I think that my kids knowing, listen, uh, you know, I don't want to know, I don't want to give some examples because probably not legal, but but like, <laughs> Wait, but did like you, you, you didn't know, even I listen want, to I my, Yeah, I want my kids to know, like, like let's call it dating, like do whatever you want to do. If you want to sleep over at somebody's house, sleep over at somebody's house. If you want to spend 24, 7, spend 24, 7 with them. But I do expect to know where you are. And I expect you to answer the phone when I call. And so like with those parameters set, they're infinitely creative in what they do inside those. And they have a better, more rich experience. But if I was just like, Hey, listen, go do your thing. That don't even need to know where you are. And this might not be the greatest metaphor, but like that don't even need to know where you are. Then they're always constantly searching for the boundaries. Like, I think reps are the same way. I'm going to give you the boundaries. If you work inside of these boundaries, you're going to hit your quota. The stuff outside the boundaries now is all extra. And you're going to, since there's no risk because you feel safe knowing that if I do what I'm supposed to, I'll hit the number I'm supposed to, then I think that your creativity actually explodes.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. So we are in complete alignment. There are so many things so we call those controls, right? Or I I use the bumper bowling, you know those bumpers that yeah. they do at the kids parties. That's that's like what what how I think of and communicate uh, validation rules in the CRM system, or like just the those bumper rules. However, I'm laughing though to to bring your fabulous analogy that does translate into back into selling and and sales boss versus sales leadership. I was at a place where we weren't allowed I was not allowed to turn the attentiveness score setting on in our Zoom instance because it was going to be quotes too distracting for the sellers. And so then there's a so there's that. Then there's a, so it's the relative nature of what is a good control, what is enough space and is RevOps the best department to make decisions about like stupid shit like that. Anyway, the other piece of it is that there's an equality of information shared aspect of it as it relates to sales leader, sales boss, and, and rep. And so it's like, is the way that we're even teaching about discovery I mean, I understand that you're, it's getting, you know, whatever kind of results or experiences you've got in sales boss at whatever level, but what's to say it can't be greater? And what's to say that that information is accurate? And so this is, again, someone that has shifted into sales enablement. This is something that I see often and we can point at all the noise on LinkedIn, um, but I think you're a part of the solution on this front in a massive way. And I actually, I want to ask... There's two questions at the end of the show. Normally I try to leave 10 minutes for it. However, I'm, I also want to kind of squeeze in one thing, but do you have a final thought on what I just shared before I squeeze in one thing and then ask our two final questions
2: about discovery specifically?
1: No, any of it like pick dealer's choice.
2: Yeah, no, no. I mean, listen, I, I think that it's interesting to talk to people that have um, a way of looking at the world that are different from yours. And I think that like, I don't know if you and I have necessarily different ways of looking at stuff. I think we have different ways of communicating it. And it's been super interesting to me to hear kind of how you react to how I talk about things. Cause I think we have a a nice space here where I'm not your boss, you know, you know, we don't have to be friends after this, though I'm sure we will be. But like, you're just giving it to me straight. And it's very interesting to hear how you're reacting to some of the things I say. It makes me want to recalibrate some of the, my, my verbiage.
1: So funny, me too. Like, so this show, this damn show, all these stupid ass conversations, it's one big deep ass practice experience for myself. And it's funny because just to understand the nature of these conversations. And so when you said like, it makes me want to recalibrate, like I... I'm feeling the same way. Like, okay, I got to, here's the things. And I'm looking forward to going back into the editing. Maybe I'll even send you the raw file so you can hear um, whatever, but you're speaking my language too. And listeners, everything that Mark said times a thousand and myself too, right. Looking at ways for, for me to get better. And like, that's the, that's the proper Mindset and it's it's like a learning mindset, but also it's a vulnerability, right? Willingness to be wrong, or let go of your rightness and/or silence that advice monster and operate in the gray. And that's hard to do. However, for those that have mastered the art of selling at an enterprise level for a long period of time, you also know how to do this. So turn around and teach your peers, please. Thank you. Okay. So I'm curious. So here's the one thing I want to slip in real quick, but I I'm 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 going to do so. I'm just going to toss it out there and then I'm going to go on mute because I'm going to hear your take. Um, And then the two questions at the end are, you know, what's the hardest conversation you've ever had to have, right? In a revenue context. And then one piece of advice for sellers about uncomfortable conversations. Easy, right? Toss-ups. I'm a, I don't, I, I, I loved silo busting while selling enterprise deals, right? Helping people to come across divides and look at yeah, whatever. Anyway, I think part of the problem with the echo chamber and tech sales in particular is that we are very exclusive in... Our conversations. And so I'm looking at, you know, Rev Collective in particular. You can even say Modern Sales Pro. I know Rev Collective just changed their name, and you guys had somebody in the leadership over there help with this announcement. Um, That said, when we almost like when we don't allow humans into the conversation or we look at a position of authority, particularly in tech space right? 85% of sales leaders, uh, bosses are are mostly white men. We can look at the venture capital dollars flowing down based on gender and race and diversity of thought and experience or lack thereof. And then the systems in place that perpetuate the existing power structure. So I, again, maybe you can pass on this if you'd like, and just pour it all into reps hate. (laughs) No, No, But what say you, sir?
2: About men. creating
1: spaces and communities that keep us separate and don't allow for the seller's voice to be injected into the dialogue. Right. And so I'm like Rev collective. You can't, you have to, there's, you, you're not allowed to be in unless you're a manager, leader, aspiring manager. And so there's a tiering aspect. I look at the AMAs over at sales hacker, you know, And so there's this nature of like oh, a guru and they're going to tell us exactly how they figured it all out versus, you know, let's listen to the sellers and hear, maybe they have some context into the buyer's experience after having conversations for a decade with our buyers, you know, like, but if, if those barriers, those controls exist to keep us separate or not allow us to commingle from a space of equality and inclusion, I don't see a lot of progress happening i
2: I hear you there there are times though that i only want to speak to people that live the same life i live every day and what i mean by that is like they're worried about building a big revenue team they have hundreds of millions of dollars of pressure they have expectations from their board and a seller doesn't have that experience they don't have that and i i'm open to talking to them but i i like having different forums Like, I like having a forum where I can just talk to my peers. I like having a forum where I just talk to reps. I like having a forum where I talk to everybody. And so, like, to me, I don't have a problem with specific forums because otherwise I don't get the same type of conversation. uh, Or I I might not get the conversation that I'm looking for. You know, listening to a rep talk to me about creating, uh, how to create a sales org when they've never done it, I'm sure there's some interesting stuff in there that I would find valuable and understand, but I also might not get a chance to hear the sales leader who has done it 10 times and what he or she has to say. So I don't, I don't mind the different forums. I just don't think that there should only be one forum that is very exclusionary that you don't get access to until a certain point. That's wrong. That feels like my first job.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. So I love it. So I'm biased on this one, right? Really? So it's, it's, I almost want to leave it there or set up another conversation to do this, even just offline, because you've just challenged me in that response. But also it's interesting, the frame that you're talking about, ask sellers about growing a multi-million-dollar go-to-market operations with, with pressures from the board. Like I, I I never said that. Um, And in team selection for process design projects, there's a role called the naive questioner. And so the import, like the, the value that comes from a person with a seat at the table that has no experience and is not impeded by whatever. Anyway, that's it. It's also far easier to hang out in forums with people that are like me, think like me, have similar experiences like me and yeah. Okay. So we can come back to that. But thank you for helping me to challenge this very large bias of mine that is, uh, needs to come down. Okay. So what was, what's the hardest conversation that you've ever had to have?
2: Oh, shoot. <laughs> um, the hardest conversation with a customer? Customer,
1: they- hiring manager, boss, peers, significant other child, right? There's ripple effects of, uh, you know, not allowing mental health into the sales conversation at all. And so really any of the above.
2: You can edit out my thinking about this, right? Cause this is, I can,
1: but I'm not going to, cause we need to teach <laughs> sellers how to leave space for thinking.
2: There you go. Um, I, a couple pop in my mind that I'm not willing to share because they're too personal. Um,
1: so what is why I. So listen, like yeah. I, the toughest
2: conversations in my life are with my wife. And, you know, like I could talk to, about some of the things that I've overcome in my wife that in my, in my life with my wife that um, require a lot of context to understand and then a singular story would seem weird or they're just not appropriate this year, probably. But you should I,
1: listen to the Duan episode, Dewan Brown. Listen,
2: maybe some people... Uh, listen, I'm pretty much an open book. I think anybody, so I'll talk about anything. There's some things though that I don't know if I
1: comfortable right so but i also i'm pushing back i think you can share a, a story or context without details or without so that others can understand an aspect of this job and these conversations and the uncomfortableness that they've never heard before because if you're feeling uncomfortable about it guess what i bet there's lots of other people that are also there but, but you don't I, have to either
2: no i i accept your challenge let me attempt to do this in a generic fashion and cuz i i the most difficult conversation I ever had was with my wife about a year to 18 months into our marriage. And I had just gone through a counseling session where I was meeting with somebody that got me to admit that I was doing something that I shouldn't be doing and something that wasn't aligned with who I wanted to be as a person or who I wanted to be as a husband. And listen, your mind can be going in a million directions right now. Just listen to the story and don't like try to guess at what I was, what I'm talking about. And so, cause it's probably not nearly as bad as you think. And so um, after I, I, I was with my wife during part of that and part of that I did individually after that individual part, I had an understanding of myself, what I was doing wrong, why I needed to change and all that, that I would be new information to my wife that she wouldn't, I would never have talked to her about, or maybe had been was, would have been nervous to talk to her about, scared to talk to her about. On the way home, she said, "Hey, listen. That what did they talk to you about when you were by yourself?" And I had a choice then to either lie, be ultra vague and dodge clarifying questions, or just be honest. And I, you know, I had some bravery in the moment for some strange reason, probably because I was excited about what I just learned about myself in a way, even though it wasn't a good thing. And I just told her and I thought I was going to get divorced. (laughs) Like the, the reaction was tough. And, you know, but in the same token is I trusted my wife after she mentally processed what was going on, she came back to me and said, Hey, you know, like, I understand what you're saying now. I also have some stuff. And, you know, and I think that that was one of those times in our marriage where we could have either drifted apart, we could have stayed at where we were at, or we could have gotten closer together. And it took, you know, like you've been talking about some open-mindedness some willingness to be, you know, self-aware. And then it took a little courage in a safe place, which she had created in our marriage at that point, enough of a safe place for me to to share that. And then, you know, listen, I've I've been married to the same woman uh, since I'm 21 years old. We have four kids that have a 20 year old, 20 year old child. Well, actually 20 year old child. I've been married for longer than I've been single. And, you know, I think that my wife is the most important person in my life. And I don't say that because I'm married to her. I'm saying that to her because we're best friends. And so like, you know, I think I've had several of those situations in my life. And I think, you know, in the same way I've had them with Bosses, I've had them with reps, I've had them with customers. And I think, you know, difficult conversations are the forges of relationship. Sometimes the wit, sometimes the thing that you're welding together doesn't stay stay stuck. Sometimes, you know, sometimes it fails. But you know what? Like I'm I've kind of reached the I'm the type of person where I'm willing to risk it the failure because I believe that the strength of the the two together is worth worth the risk. So Hopefully that helps without being too generic and making me seem like I'm some kind of adulterer, which I'm not.
1: <laughs> I, you know, it's so funny. Um, wow. That was so powerful. And you're and brave that I throw that spouse in there often when I think, of, okay, so we're at time here. So just to extract from that story, one piece of advice for sellers about uncomfortable conversations, and then we'll be off with our days. Okay.
2: What was the question?
1: One piece of advice for sellers experienced tech sellers about uncomfortable conversations?
2: Yes, Uh, um, so two, but semi-related. One is um, we always assume, we, we know our intentions, and we never know someone else's intentions, but we assume them. And most of the times our assumptions are wrong or built in biases that cause them to be inaccurate or misguided or whatever. And we don't give other people the same benefit of the doubt that we give ourselves because we understand our intentions so well. And so it's very important for us to stop when we're starting to um, assume the intentions of someone and either give themselves to explain it, Or just assume the very best of the situation and move forward in that. And I I think that that's something that I've learned recently. I've I've really taken to heart. And I think that we don't take a second and realize, you know what? I, I do always understand my motivations. I know why I have them. I know what it is. And I can never do anything besides assume someone
1: else's. Not only that, I want others to assume the positive intent that I had when things go wrong but i'm never willing to or rarely willing to extend that same courtesy that's right. in the face of conflict for others that's spot on okay so we're four minutes over mark can you do me a favor you know how on linkedin you can do the audio clips yeah on your phone can you i know you haven't listened to any of the episodes When after the dust settles, can you send me an audio clip or two or three, however many you hell you want about the experience of the conversation on the show. Um, and then I'm, I'm going to pull that in just for fun banter and a different way to think about after the fact, like an after action review type thing.
2: That's good.
1: All right, Mark. I, like I said, I, I, I'm, yeah. Um, look for that intro email to Ryan Walsh right after this episode too. Cause so that's happening and, uh, have a beautiful day. Keep doing what you're doing. I can't wait to see the Reps Hate series. Anything going on that you want to shout out real quick by way of promotions or you good?
2: No, no. Listen, I think, uh, we talked about outreach enough That's that's, you know, my passion is, is kind of what we do at outreach and I'm, I'm super honored and privileged to have uh, the job that i have and get to do the things i get to do and so yeah you can uh, you know I'll do a lot of stuff on linkedin mostly for my own benefit writing things down it is typically solidifies my thinking and it, i get to do it i do it in a public way so that i get to see how people react to it and stuff like that but like I i'm not doing the right reps hate or the exec hate for really anybody other than myself
1: mm-hmm. That sounds like somebody that's doing a podcast about uncomfortable conversation. So yeah, you're speaking to my heart there. All right, friend. And again, listeners, I fucking love outreach. This is a phenomenal tool to help separate and differentiate and scale right um, around high value and low value tasks and pushing the low value into automation and so that we as human beings can focus on those things that bring the most value to other human beings. Um, Mark, you're the best. I'm still very interested in hearing about the data lab. So if you feel like uh, whispering in my ear, like I, I'm, I'm down for that. Um, cool. And and to our listeners, oh, also thank you so much for coming on the show, Cole. Thank you for being vulnerable with me. Um, and I look forward to putting this out so that others can hear it. But thank you truly. And to our listeners, truth, love, and joy, friends. Happy selling. See you. Bye.
0: Whew. man that was heavy but necessary you know important important stuff being thrown around virtues that we as humans can build a sturdy foundation on i heard words like trust i heard words like action i heard words like consistency and uh i think this is important but i i also live in the real world right where i trust that the action amy didn't take was to consistently feed the doll or file her legal disclaimer paperwork from all the unnecessary risks she takes on a weekly basis karen is gonna be pissed
1: karen all right friends the only way this works as a hotline is if we find some people to come play Anybody who's interested or brave enough or desperate enough, because let's be serious, that's where it's at. Everything you need to know is in the show notes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Call in. Don't have enough to do? You want a couple of books to read? Maybe we can boss you around for a couple hours? Yeah, please, by all means, call.
1: If you like what you're hearing or are excited for this shit show and where it's going to go... Definitely follow us on whatever podcast device is your preference, even though I I seriously have a hard time identifying with anything non-Spotify, but you know, I guess I'll come to terms with that. If you find any value in things that we're talking about, do tell a friend. I consider that the highest honor. Of course, there's always the public review of any kind, although part of me thinks that I should not ask that until we're out of beta.
0: Just a note for sponsors from Karen and Pete down in Legal, we are anxious to receive your call. And if you are looking to help or join the cause or create change in a positive way, please reach out to anyone but me because I have enough to do. And Amy will definitely be interested in taking your money to help more people, which is what we do here, you know, stuff, legal stuff.
1: You know, it's pretty crazy. I still can't believe people listen to shit I say. Yeah, like there's certainly a kernel of truth somewhere in there. But, you know, it's it's just it's wrapped up in a story.
0: Order the dog food, Amy. Order it. Chewy.com. Possible sponsor.
1: Lola, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, baby. I love you. Here, take some pats. Come sit up on my lap.
0: I don't know about you listeners, but I enjoy my podcast on Stitcher. I mean, I don't have a premium count because I'm holding out for sponsorship. Hey, Stitcher, looking at you. Also, I believe we mentioned Chewy, so there will be a link to them in the show notes, even though we are not sponsored by them. And I bought my dog food at Target this week because it was on sale and I saved on shipping. All
1: right, friends, thank you for listening to The Conversation. For more ridiculousness, check out the extended cut of the outro. And that's a wrap.
0: I can't, I can't, I can't. So this is Pete, your disclaimer specialist, coming to you at the super secret disclaimer portion of the show because this is a pod about transparency and difficult conversations. And with everyone being so open and honest, um, I must be. So here goes. Um, as the outroer to the outroe, I'm sorry. I apologize. You know, I, I misled you intentionally. As your attorney, I must confess that I am not a fucking attorney. <laughs> um, I have not passed the bar exam in the state in which I live, I uh, have never represented anyone well in anything, let alone in a court of law. Um, But again, these are difficult conversations that Amy's having with with her guests, and and I lied. And I should tell you that. I should be open and honest, because, you know, we have been. So we can all be better. We can all do better together. And now I'm just rambling at this point. Just Who cares? It's an outro, right? Like, this is just going to fade into blackness. Like the Mars rover, maybe a little bit less sad. That was fucking sad. Oh, let's not be that sad.
1: Come on, guys. We can do better.